You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Hey, guys. Hey, hey guys. Uh, we've got a great show today. Who did you talk to for this great um, show? I talked to Jen Percy, who um, you may have seen an article circulating that's from New Republic called, I believe, My Night with Afghanistan's Only Female Warlord. Or my Terrifying my Night. My Terrifying Very Night. Very important adjective. Yeah, my Terrifying Night. <laughs> yeah. my, my, my good time yeah. with uh, <laughs> Afghanistan's Only Female Warlord. <laughs> time I went bowling with. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a really visceral and um, really well done piece, which yeah. made me interested in her work. And so I ended up getting her book, uh, Demon Camp, which came out, I think, in January. Um, she's a really interesting young writer. One of those uh, holy shit stories that like we read it. And yeah. Aaron was like, that's someone I want to talk to for the podcast. Yeah. And it's all, it's actually it's a um, it's a fruit that's going to a tree to continue uh, bearing fruit because uh, she took a extended trip to Afghanistan and actually has a uh, several pieces of reporting coming out from that trip. So oh, wow. um, I think January Harper as well also have one from her. Uh, I think we've got some sponsors. Uh, I heard uh, that, that we have sponsors. One sponsor is uh, the novel Dear Thief by Samantha Harvey. It's one of the uh, Atavist Books titles. It's available at atavist.com. You can also find it at retailers. It has gotten uh, pretty universal praise from people who have read it so far. So check it out. Dear Thief, Samantha Harvey. It's available now. You know what else gets universal praise? Tiny letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple yet powerful way to start an email newsletter. Uh, Max recently told me we were comparing um, Gmail filters. Um, Max actually, like one of his defaults in Gmail is just a folder for all of the tiny letters that he follows. I do love the tiny letters. So go go start one or go uh, find a few and subscribe to them and um, start your tiny lettering today. Here's Aaron with Jen Percy. Welcome, Jen Percy. Thanks so much for having me. You have a story in the new New Republic. People have asked me about it more than almost any other piece I've read in the last few months. So you seem to have um, captured many readers' imaginations with the piece. It's about a female warlord in Afghanistan at its barest level. And the, f- the first thing I guess I'm sort of interested in is what brought you to Afghanistan and how did you get yourself in a position where you could do this piece? Well, I'd been wanting to go to Afghanistan for years, actually. And 
I have a sort of traumatic moment with my parents I can get to later about trying to get over there. <laughs> um, but on a more practical level, I had been writing about soldiers and veterans. And so a lot of my interest rose from uh, soldiers' experiences in the war. My book is based on a soldier's experience with PTSD. And I had been trying to get over there while I was in Iowa. I was in grad school and it wasn't really working. I didn't know very many journalists and I didn't have very many connections. And right when I got to New York, I uh, was able to meet people that could put me in touch with fixers. And I'm sorry, I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Like when you're a total layman and you're like, I want to go to Afghanistan, like what are the routes to get into Afghanistan as a journalist? Well, I didn't know before. So basically, I met someone named Luke Mogelson, who you probably know as a journalist. Come on the podcast, Luke. And he basically was living there and said he would pick me up at the airport, um, introduce me to fixers, and, and give me a cell phone. And so that's that's really what I needed. And I found, you know, basically an idea for a story um, by searching through some newspapers. And what I wanted to do was go over there and write about women that were running away from home and look at how the U.S. had set up institutions that were apparently saving women and kind of see if that was a more symbolic gesture or not what happens to these women when they run away from home. And I was following a girl that fled um, an abusive family in Helmand to Kabul. And so I kind of um, went over there to find her, and luckily I did. And I just followed her through the shelter system. And when you go to do a story like this, you're kind of on your own. You don't have any institution backing you or, uh, you know, a guaranteed publication or anything for that kind of a story. Yeah, this was all on my own. And actually, I met with an editor at Harper's uh, three days before my flight and pitched the story to him and he took it. Oh, but was, I was going to go anyway. <laughs> so but the New Republic, um, they I, I told the editors over there, but it wasn't for sure. Uh -huh. And I didn't know anything, of course, about this warlord until I got over there. And so that's like something you have to fund yourself, basically, if you want to do go to Afghanistan. Yeah, I basically spent all my life. savings on Christmas vacation in Afghanistan. And when you when you go and find someone who's who's been um, been the subject of like a short news story, and you say you want to write about them, what's the response from someone in Afghanistan to being written about? Well, for these women in particular, they didn't mind. I don't think any Afghans I spoke to had any problem with it, but mostly they didn't want their picture taken. They were concerned with images more than words. Hmm. It was kind of interesting. At a shelter I went to, actually, I asked if I could take a picture of the women. They were all like, okay, sure. And they lined up and all sat in this little plastic chair, but they faced their backs to me. And so I just took pictures of their backs. And that seemed to be their primary concern. A few people asked me to change their names. but What is the fear about photography? Well, they're all considered criminals, so if their face gets on the internet, uh, their family might be able to locate them. Hmm. So I'm assuming since this New Republic story has come out and I have not seen a story in Harper's, that's still something that is forthcoming? Yeah, it's in the January issue. January issue, okay. A couple months. Keep, keep, an, keep an eye out for that one. So if you're on your own dime in Afghanistan, is the basic goal like get as many stories as possible while you're there? Well, I didn't really know what was going to happen, and I kind of gave myself permission to fail completely and uh, just get a feel for the area, and it was actually surprisingly easy to report there, basically because I'm a woman and because we've been there for so long and because there are fixers, you don't have to do too much legwork to mm. figure out how to get around. I you know, couldn't walk around by myself because I'm a woman, so that made things easier. 
I had to have someone escort me every time I went to buy groceries. I mean, it was a pain, but it, you know, it helped it, me not be have to worry about you know getting out Google Maps in the middle of the street and cobble, et cetera. So I would always have someone come to my door, pick me up, take me to where I needed to go. How much does an Afghan fixer cost to, to employ? Yeah, it really them? varies. And I got a deal a deal apparently for $150 a day. $150 a day. And they asked, you know, if I wasn't freelance, they wanted to charge me a couple of them said 300 a day. And so it was it was a lot of money, but they also they're with you, you know, I was with my fixer sometimes 10 hours a day and they would also, you know, be helping you with organized interviews, you know, driving you around. And so, so it's, it, it's worth it. Who who was what was who was your fixer while you were there? I had a couple of a them. Couple. Okay. The one in the story is name is Sharif. Sharif. Yeah. So someone like Sharif getting somewhere between 150 and 300 a day. Like how many how many journalists has Sharif escorted at, I don't know how many what are you, 10 years in? Now? Yeah, these guys are making tons of money. Yeah. And they just don't believe you when you say you're broke. Yeah. You're an American, you're rich. So there was a lot of controversy over that. You know, like, please, please just give me a little bit more money. He'd pretend that phone calls were costing him $100. But it was fine. And, you know, he was saving up to try to get out of the country. He was trying to um, have human traffickers bring him out for 20 grand. To, to where? When I talked to him over there, he was saying, I think, Brazil. I mean, they have all these different routes. Right. Um, eventually, he got his visa, so he didn't have to do that. So at this point, someone who's been doing this kind of a fixing job for a period of years, when you tell them, I want to do this story about women, are they giving you a, a journalistic roadmap to how much, how that story, I mean, so much of journalism is so self-directed in America. I'm, I'm interested in how you cope with that in a country where you have no connections and no free agency, really. Well, basically I would tell him what I wanted and it was very hard to explain that I wanted to write a long-form piece that was not just a news clip. So we'd go in, and he'd be like, okay, we need to go now, like 10 minutes later. And that was really frustrating, um, trying to time interviews, because he'd always imagine it was an in-and-out kind of a deal. And mm. I'd want to spend you know, a whole day at a shelter, or two yeah. days at a shelter. And so I ended up missing interviews. We got kicked out of the passport office because we were late three times. And so that was a problem. Um, but basically, you know, you just say, who are the people to talk to? Kabul's you know, not a big city. You know, they have a phone list that goes from Karzai to, you know, anyone. So, um, you know, they'll just sort of look through their list and, and figure out people you, to talk to. You can to. just call Karzai? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. My, my fixer could, yeah. Yeah. Did <laughs> um, you, like, did you have any urge to just, like, throw in a call to Karzai as long as you're on the clock? <laughs> not to Karzai, although I was going to talk to Abdullah Abdullah and give him the Proust questionnaire. But I had, you know, some other stuff to you do. You had limited so. time yes. to uh, dedicate <laughs> to it. So... I'm interested in, in something you said there, which is that you wanted to do a long form piece, which involved a lot of hanging around. And that's very evident in both this story and in your book that you're kind of waiting for something to happen more than you're going somewhere where you know something will happen. In the case of this story uh, about um, Commander Pigeon, who's the, the female warlord, how much time did you actually spend in her camp? So we were only planning on spending three hours there, which was, you know, I was kind of furious about that idea at first. And Sharif just didn't want to stay any longer. We didn't know if it was safe to be there. Yeah. So, you know, you might say it was a stroke of good luck that there was a snowstorm. Then we were trapped over there. So it was really we were forced to stay about 24 hours, which is still doesn't seem very long. Um, and so we were, you know, we hardly slept at all interviewing her 
the whole time we were there. I, you know, if I had my choice, I would have stayed there as long as possible. Even that, how how is that ne- negotiated? Like, if you say to Sharif, "Hey, I need two days here," is there like, like how, how do you how do you make a decision like that? In, in the yeah, field? I mean, you can be really pushy, and if you give them money, they'll stay. Yeah, but I it was my first time in Afghanistan. I already hadn't planned on leaving Kabul, and I felt like the time I had spent with Commander Pigeon was actually enough at mm-hmm. that point. I felt like I got to at least see part of the image that had been building her up break down, and that was interesting for me as a story. I'd gone there actually thinking that I would write a very in-depth portrait of her, yeah. but she was just not good at communicating. She wasn't good at talking. And so, um, you know, you kind of have to really quickly rearrange your thinking process. Yeah, I was really interested in the piece. So it's a very compelling setup, Obviously, there's this mysterious um, female warlord who's living amidst her own legends in the mountains. And when you get there, most of what you find out does not, neither confirms nor dispels the mythology. It's almost like uh, you leave with just as much information as you came with, but it's still a really interesting story. So once you had that experience of, okay, I didn't, crack the legend of Commander Pigeon. Commander Pigeon may not even have totally cracked her own legend um, and is maybe not the most reliable narrator. At that point, how do you think about turning that into a story, particularly like in the second half of the story? Mm -hmm. What do you do with that as a a raw ingredient? Well, there was a moment when I was asking questions and then Sharif was giving me back the answers and and he kept saying, yeah, but she's not answering your question. And I just said, it's okay, just let her talk, just Mm -hmm. let her be yourself, even though it's not specifically, you know, maybe going the direction we want it to go. So in a way, she's sort of condemning herself to whatever she's saying in response to this maybe pre-prepared, you know, narrative we had come to bring her saying, oh, by the way, we heard you did this, we heard you did that. Well, she's deciding instead to not answer those questions, but bring sort of a new narrative to light, Um, kind of follow that one thing I am interested in is is going to places sort of at the end of things, sort of after the fact, and sort of seeing how maybe for a long time we'd been content with false narratives. And I think sort of in aftermath, these false narratives kind of rise to the surface and they kind of slap us in the face. And sometimes you can see several false narratives. And I think Commander Pigeon, we don't see one clear line, but we saw that she's constantly changing her story, or she's an unreliable narrator herself. And I think there was something about her trying to, you know, feed me this turkey that that moment that I didn't know how to make what to make of it at the moment. But that was the moment I took home with me and thought this is where I felt like I got to know Commander Pigeon the best and that her character was revealed. And so I kind of just made the writing swirl around that moment. And it took a long time to draft this essay. It, it, it didn't, you know, come out fully formed by any means. Hey, this is Longform co-host Evan. I'm going to pause Aaron and Jen there for a second to talk about uh, one of our sponsors this week, which is the novel Dear Thief. It's by Samantha Harvey. It is, uh, it's one of the Atavist Books titles. Uh, we have it for sale on atavist.com. You can also find it at retailers. And this book is getting a huge amount of praise. It's a novel. 
It's, uh, I'm just going to read you a couple of things that have been written about it. The Times of London says, uh, Harvey's writing is stunning, an effortless spool that gradually winds back the layers, dropping in revelations. Brilliant. Uh, and they're all pretty much like that, up and down. So uh, it's worth checking out. Her previous novel also uh, had a lot of acclaim. It's called The Wilderness. Uh, so you can check it out at uh, you know Amazon and your retailers. You can also come to atavist.com or go to the Atavist app for iOS or Android. Uh, download it, and you can buy it there. Now back to Aaron and Jen. You're a lyrical writer. It would not surprise me to, to find that you had written fiction or that you had uh, you were not from like a uh, hardcore n- uh, newsroom yeah. background. Yeah. And when you're writing in that way, it's a, it's reliant on a lot of atmospheric detail and, and a really a deep memory of, of not just what was said but what was happening in the background and the small part parts of the story because what's happening in the foreground in the story is not a lot. Like not a lot happened while you're there. There was a snowstorm and she forced you to eat some really disgusting sounding turkey. Exactly. How do you capture all of that background noise that you may or may not need later in the story? I write down pretty much everything I'm looking at as you know, I go through a story, mm-hmm. if possible. I'm constantly, even in an interview, I'm usually taping it so that I can take notes of what, what's going on around me. I always listen to tapes again so I can make sure if there's pauses, uh, what's going on with um, tone. And so I think that's just sort of how I approach the world as I'm sort of overstimulated by it, maybe. And so even Sharif was a little bit weirded out by the notes I was taking. He's like, why are you writing about this mountain over there? Because he's more sort of a news-driven person. And then I think that I kind of gather that together at the end and see organically uh, uh, what comes of that, those because if I'm paying attention to detail, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, some of it I can just discard, but it might be pointing to something in my psychology that I'm not sort of consciously aware of at the time, but sort of seeing more um, unconsciously what's sort of rising to the surface. What are my obsessions at that time that might be important to highlight um, and sort of positioning myself in the narrative that way? And the book has a very strong sense of voice. Do you use like verbatim transcripts to try to get that sense of voice? Do you type out the entire audio transcript? I do type it all out. And I did at times um, trans. I mean, at the the demon camp itself, I had a tape recorder with me the whole time. And a lot of that was verbatim. And even sort of in the beginning, trying to appropriate Caleb's voice into sort of some of my descriptions Mm -hmm. or thinking. Because in that first section of the book, I wanted to reconstruct Caleb's life in third person as closely as possible. So it's gathering details from, you know, interviews over, I think it was a six-year period. It was a long time I got to know him. And, you know, he would talk about having conversations with apparitions. And so I was interested in not having a moment where you pause, you know, when those, those memories come into the text and say, oh, by the way, you know, this is a ghost, you know, right. in retrospect, but having yeah. it flow and be the experience of that memory. Yes. And so, you know, I hope through the language, the reader's aware of that. And also, you know, the sensational moments where he's talking to Kip and he's talking about prophecies, his dead friend Kip. And it's not something you see a lot in nonfiction, but I wanted to sort of give him his own world for a while, for as long as I could. And I, and I start out that chapter by, you know, the repetition of he remembered it this way, he remembered it this way. 
um, trying to clue the reader into that. For for people who who haven't read the book, and and there's um, there's an excerpt of it in Harper's that in you Harper's, can read, yeah. read online if if you're interested, and I really do recommend checking out the book. It tells the story of uh, a veteran who. Trauma- the inciting traumatic uh, incident is the crash of a helicopter, but who uh, was traumatized by a whole war experience. Um, and it traces his life and his move to a small town in Georgia. I guess he has sort of two ambitions there, one of which is um, building a garage where military vehicles can be uh, renovated by veterans into civilian vehicles i guess i, I wasn't yeah, exactly, exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, and which never happened which never but happened but he had dreams. ambitions to do it and to then funnel the proceeds of that into anti-suicide programs which take the form of a um an exorcism camp uh, a place where people can go to uh, exercise the demons which are following them so in constructing that kind of a narrative and trying to capture that voice and that experience of ghosts, did you have models for other books that had that sort of a built-in challenge to them? No. And it, it, I mean, structure was really, really difficult. And I initially started with, you know, me meeting Caleb at this reservoir. And then I found that as the conversation was building between us, that there was just too much information for the reader to deal with. There was the war. There was suddenly, why am I there? There's, there's, you know, his talk about demons. There's us trying to get a sense of place. So the reader was just overwhelmed. And so I thought about different ways to um, basically manage the information so that we could sort of wade into uh, the, the demons and start out someplace maybe a little more ordinary. Uh, but one thing I did do before all that even was included a prologue, which basically told the whole story of the book. And that's one technique you can see, you know, in fiction or essays. It's just tell the story first, get it over with. That's not really the point of reading this. It's not plot based. Yeah. I did that to kind of calm the reader's ideas and expectations and then wanted to develop this sort of third person voice first before I got the eye in there. When the eye comes in is 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 always a difficult question and how much to put in there. Yeah. But I, I didn't want the book ever to be about myself. And so um, I really wanted Caleb's world to come alive. And he did such a great job telling me his story that I thought I could have these huge swaths of it in between our interactions. And there's additionally a postscript to there's the a book. Post- oh, yeah. That's interesting. The so the yeah. book is kind of like starts in reality and ends in reality and gets very and, free. And there's a nightmare in, in, in Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it has very much that feel, which I, I thought was a really interesting structure. The book very lightly touches on the idea of PTSD. And then in the epilogue, you talk very lucidly and, and more uh, statistically about PTSD um, as for in, in the way a, a news story might. Mm-hmm. Why, why include that epilogue and, and what role do you feel like it filled? So the epilogue was actually about a 30-page essay on PTSD. Yeah. And I decided to discard that later. And, and, and we decided, you know, to keep a little bit in, in the epilogue. The reason that it wasn't included in the narrative itself is because it, it was slowing things down. But more importantly, the book is actually sort of interrogating the language we use to talk about PTSD, about psychiatric disorders. And as I mentioned in the book, PTSD has gone through, you know, 
dozens of different names. The prologue is called A Brief History of the Disorderly Conduct of the Heart, and that was actually one of the names given to PTSD. Uh, shell shock is another term people have probably heard a lot. Yeah. Someone once told me that the that the true like origin of the word shell shock is actually that shells exploding close to your ear um, knock the like liquid that balances your ear out. So like the original meaning of shell shock was actually like a physical condition under which you had no um, inner ear fluid anymore. Yeah, exactly. So it was the actual shock due to um, these shells exploding that was um, apparently giving you the symptoms that yeah. we now call PTSD. And the reason for that is interesting is because uh, hysteria was a female disease. So men could not have hysteria. Yeah. So if it was physical in origin, it wasn't a problem with your psychology or brain. It was a you know, physical injury, sort of a badge of honor even. Right. You know, I think it's still sometimes f- for men taboo to talk about psychological trauma in that way. It has a history r- very much related to our denial or our resistance to have that kind of trauma in society, men coming out from the battlefield. It's not, you know, typically masculine narrative. Right. I think you're maybe the third or fourth person on this show who's reported from Afghanistan, uh, but you are, as far as I know, the only woman. Is being a woman a asset or a problem in terms of reporting from a place like that? I actually asked a few people that before I went, and they said that there's three genders. There's men, there's Afghan women, and then there's just American women that they don't know what to do with. Yeah. And so I was sort of in this gender-neutral category and I mean, it certainly benefited me for this story. And that's one of the reasons I pursued these women's stories first was because I had unique access. Um, even when I was talking in the women sh- talking to women in the shelters, I had to have a female translator with me because they just don't talk to men. They didn't let my fixer in. Um, but the women, the women wouldn't want to talk to them anyway. They would just lie or be really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. What What brought you to writing? What, what was your What was your childhood like? I had a really weird childhood. So maybe Pray maybe tell. that ex- maybe that explains it. <laughs> I, that's I, exactly the response I'm looking for. Like, <laughs> generally, I ask that question, people are like, "Well, I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. Went to Harvard." Okay, so I mean, what you can't was, outweird my childhood. Maybe you can't, but where did you grow up? In a town of 500 people in rural Oregon, um, near Bend, okay. a town called Tumalo. Most of my childhood was spent in the desert. My my mom and dad would just take my brother out there and leave us in the desert alone. And we would just walk off. And our job was to collect ancient Indian artifacts and bring them back. Um, And sometimes we did that or sometimes we just sit down and just stare into space and wait for the sun to go down. Is this the desert in Oregon? Yeah, all of eastern Oregon is high desert. Oh, that's right. Sagebrush, cowboys, all that. Why did your parents want you to collect these these Indian artifacts? My dad just took them and put them in a closet that was locked. And so we don't know. Okay. Either he's collecting them, he wanted to sell them. My mom thinks she's part Native American. We don't really know if she is, but she's very connected to nature and would force us to have these moments where we just imagine the world before, you know, white man came and, and took over and there were the, the rivers were full of salmon. And I, I know it was it was a lot of um, time spent imagining yeah. the world outside of ourselves, a lot of time alone. I went to a school that pretty much looked like a trailer park. Um, one of the teachers punched my brother in the face. Oh. I got made fun of because I didn't ha- own a heifer, and I had to do guinea pig 4-H. A heifer is a, ca- uh, a pig? A, a cow? A cow, yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Guess who's not from the country. So, um, so what were your outlets out of a 500-person town in your childhood? 
Well, eventually the school was in just shut down. And after the incident of my teacher punching my brother in the face, yeah. my mom decided that she didn't want me to go to public school again, which was a terrible decision. So she sent me straight to Portland to boarding school. And so I showed up there wearing a, you know, a wolf shirt and hiking boots. And meanwhile, all the kids are drinking alcohol at Wendy's parking lots and, you know, snorting Coke and, and they're all rich and have their, you know, convertibles. And so that was like a, a new moment of trauma. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Learning to, to interact with these, these urban kids. Um, How old were you when you? That was right when for high school. For high school. Yeah. At what point did you start writing? Not until really late. I, I wanted to be a scientist, study physics. And that was my, you know, I was on track to do that. And I ended up going to Russia one summer in college. Just I found an internship on the internet and they, you know, said they would pay you for everything except for your ticket. So I just bought that and showed up to Russia. And they just sent us north to work on this nature reserve. And it was sort of, you know, such a strange experience that I ended up writing about it excessively afterwards to try to make sense of it. And sort of that was my first material. And I was doing that instead of going to my, you know, economics class, et cetera. And so I enrolled in a workshop. I think this is junior or senior year of college. And I was at Middlebury. So I applied to the Breadloaf Writers Conference. And every year they let in one Middlebury student scholarship. And so I got that scholarship. And when I went to the conference, I just felt like I had found my tribe, as they say. I, I um, really connected to the people there. That's where I met Matt Power. Actually, Matt Power. I was in a workshop with him with Ted Conover. I think he workshopped, or, or at least he was passing around one of his Harper's pieces. And So you met some writers there. And at that point, when you knew that you wanted to do that, like, what was your, like, how, what was your game plan of how you were going to get in? I mean, I didn't think of it that way huh. at all. I mean, I think I was mostly writing to make sense of myself. So I wasn't quite sure if I wanted it to be a career. I just had been noticed this pattern that I liked these writers, but I didn't really know. There's obviously many different paths you can take. You can be an editor. Um, there's radio. But I moved to New York and worked in publishing. And I, I mean, I can't stand structure or being in an office. And so I just fled to grad school immediately. Where did you go to grad school? Iowa. The fiction or the nonfiction program in Iowa? I did the nonfiction program first, and then I went right into the fiction program after. You can do that? I guess so. So you have like a, a I double, think I'm the first person a to A double do that. master's in fiction <laughs> and double, nonfiction? Yeah. And that takes four years total? Um, five. Five. Yeah. Tell me about that decision. We, we don't have to get in the discussion about MFAs necessarily. <laughs> I, I For me, it was a really positive experience. Yeah. I, I had a fellowship and I, and I was getting teaching experience and I was being introduced to nonfiction that I'd never read before, um, talking about genre, talking about lyric essays, et cetera. So I absolutely love the nonfiction program. The last year was just a year to write. You don't have to do anything else. And so it really gave me a base to start my book. And the fiction program was sort of a different thing. I had applied for as many different fellowships as I could and that was really the only one I got. Which was, was like staying in Iowa. Yeah, I was staying Isn't in Isn't that Iowa. like a very hard program to get into though? Yeah, it was it was strange and lucky and I also I, didn't really want to be in Iowa anymore, but it was, you know, I still had to finish my book and so knowing that you had gotten into fiction for the for the fellowship as it were, like what was your relationship like with the fiction students? It seemed to me there was like a real divide between the fiction and nonfiction people. 
Yeah, that's mostly imposed on the nonfiction people by the fiction people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so so they're on they're sleeping in the bottom bunk, nonfiction. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, it's the number one program. It was great. Yeah. I think I learned a lot more in that program than I did the fiction. But so the, the fiction also... people have like a, are on the high horse towards the nonfiction people. That's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. To come on this podcast, they're going to get the exact opposite. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's true everywhere though. I mean, you yeah. still, people are still dismissive of nonfiction as a creative art. Yeah. It, it's, it's a problem. There's not even that many nonfiction MFAs. What was it like going through the fiction program, having like being kind of deep in a nonfiction book and sort of immersing yourself in that? I mean, it was nice to be able to stray away from my topic a bit and, and sort of relax my brain um, be able to, you know, not have to make phone calls or do research or any of that. You know, I met so many wonderful people and a lot of my really good friends and readers are from that program. Um, I mean, you can kind of make, you know, you can do as much work as you want there. Mm-hmm. It's, they're not regulating you. If you don't go to workshop, you know, you're not going to get reprimanded. So it was a really actually great environment to, you know, get what I need from the professors, but also work on my own project independently. Demon Camp is a pretty uh, monumental work to be the first thing that you publish. Did you, I mean, did you consider doing like magazine work or anything else in between? It's a, it's a big, uh, it's a big bite to chew. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think I would have liked to, but it was such a big project that it consumed almost every aspect of my life while also trying to get these degrees. And I... There were moments where I thought, why am I doing this? You know, it was it was really hard to put together. So the reporting for Demon Camp, you were doing like on breaks from Iowa City? Exactly. Sort of? I would just drive 13 hours south on breaks and, you know, I'd have no money. So I was often sleeping in uh, airport parking lots are a great place to sleep because you can get up and get a snack if you need it at night. And there's it, security. I mean, that's an interesting question, actually. Like, I think a lot of people would like to take on something of this size but are like, I don't have, you know, I don't I don't have rent for next month. How the fuck am I going to write a whole book? Did you budget your time, like how much time it would take to report and supporting yourself and everything? Like did you have a plan for finishing the book? No, there's no plan. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, do it till you die yeah. kind of a thing. I mean, part of the plan was, you know, when I graduated, I didn't want I knew I couldn't get a 9 to 5 job. I had to do one of these post MFA fellowships or go into another program to finish. That was certain. My other option was going to Cambodia for a Fulbright, but I, I mean, there's no way I would have finished it there. So, I mean, I just, I was stuck. So you turned down a Fulbright in Cambodia? because <laughs> Just, just for demon camp. Yeah. yeah. So, and at what point in the genesis of the book did you sell it? Early, very early. early. But I had, I was orphaned twice. So, um, and different editors had told me different things. So there, there was a few bumps on the way. Um, but I sold it based on 30 pages and, and an outline. And then... You know, having never written a book before, I think I, um, you know, I, I looked for the, the, the space. I'd already done a lot of the reporting, but it, um, by the time I'd put everything together, I realized I need to do more reporting. Um, so it was really important for me to be in America. And in terms of a budget, all I had was this, you know, graduate stipend to go off of. So I got into huge credit card debt. I was going to say, I'm surprised you, like, even had enough gas to get but, that. But um, <laughs> I did. I was fortunate enough to get an NEA. That's one thing. So the advance was not enough to cover how much time and and out of your life it, it took to finish the book. It helped definitely, yeah. but they give you. I mean, they give you half of the advance. Oh right, right. To begin with. It's all in yeah. chunks, or it's yeah, it's in chunks. I think it was a quarter, maybe. So once the book came out, what was your next step from there? 
you could have gone into the poetry program, of course, if you wanted right. to get a few I know, more right? years That's, in that. Yeah. So um, having um, used up all of <laughs> Iowa City's uh, in right. fellowships, what did you do then? I got back from Afghanistan and my book came out five days later. Yeah. And by that point, I didn't even care about anything because I had been, I was, you know, exposed to this amazing new world. And all I wanted to do was write about Afghanistan. Um, but I was running around doing readings and, and um, so I didn't really get to the writing until later. And, you know, I decided to just keep pursuing magazine assignments at this point. And I, I plan on going back, not to Afghanistan, but to Turkey. Can you talk about what you'll be doing there? Yeah, I guess so. I'm looking for a book project, but I'm also interested. I'm writing for foreign policy about uh, women being recruited by ISIS. Mm. So I'm going to go try to find some brides. Wow, that sounds <laughs> kicking around pleasant. the city. Uh, uh, that's that's in that sort of the border town that that is the yeah. crossing point. Yeah, the border towns. So. And you did some teaching also along the way. Yeah, I, I taught full time all last year. What was that experience like? It was really difficult to report and be teaching. Um, it was three three, but on top of that, I had a, a practicum and um, I, don't even, I don't know what three three means or a practicum. It's means. a it's a yeah the academic lingo. So yeah. three classes for this fall semester, three classes for the spring semester. Having explored this this world of veterans in demon camp and now been to Afghanistan, what are the larger things that you want to tackle in in writing going forward? What's what's the next challenge for you? Oh, it's a big question. The yeah. next challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think one thing that writers end up doing, even they might think that they're challenging themselves, but really what we're trying to do is just write out our obsessions. Yes. So I think I'm trying to just write out my obsession. The other maybe thread that ties Demon Camp to the most recent piece in Harper's is this idea of haunting and trauma, traumatic memory. And I think I'm still writing pieces that have to do with PTSD as haunting. When you have an obsession or you're, you're developing an obsession and, and thinking about how can I make this into a book, how do you pursue that? What are your research techniques and, and how do you how do you approach turning an obsession in, into a story? Well, as is the nature of obsession, I think you'll just start gathering materials, sort of hoarding documents. Yeah. Um, taking notes and, and, and gathering information in a way that's totally chaotic, overwhelming, and you don't even care yet because you're so excited by what you're gathering. Yeah. And so I think if you start trying to make a narrative out of it too soon, it'll be false or it'll fall apart. And so part of the process is just stepping back, I think, for a while, digesting things and maybe putting a drawer, coming back, and then you can kind of see which parts are actually important and need to be there um, that's not just sort of interesting to you, you know, but, but can be, you know, there's, that's, that's the second step is making something interesting for a reader, for an right. audience and right. that, that transformation. If you're too obsessed with something or you're, you know, you're too close emotionally to an experience, same thing, yeah. like you should probably just, you know, wait a little bit. Um, it's not as effective if you're, you know, crying over the paper. I mean, I think that's sort of a, um, one of the flaws in a lot of academic writing is that it has this desire for completeness where, you know, if you're writing, say, a thesis, you have to include every piece of information. It has to be footnoted, and it has mm. to be more definitive than any other account. You can't you can't really reduce uh, an obsession in that kind of a way. In, in the case of Demon Camp, w- what parts of the obsession get stripped away from the reader, but that like interest you? 
I mean, there's there's so many things. Um, I'll just start by the, there was this guy that thought he was a reincarnation of Stonewall Jackson that was living in my neighborhood, and I, I went and visited him quite often. And <laughs> I really wanted him to be in the book, but it didn't make any sense. Yeah. And so I was kind of just gathering other people that had sort of ghost stories to put in there. Uh, I originally had sort of a narrative about my childhood and sort of the ghost stories my parents told me. Mm, All that kind of stuff got cut. And that was sort of something an editor told me to put in and another editor told me to put out. So, you know, that's just, you know, just kind of changes the feeling of a book. Yeah, I mean, once you told me that your inspiration from the book wasn't like PTSD, but it was like this larger idea of apparitions, you know, I was thinking, wow, this book could have also had a like 50-page history of like how we like interpret ghosts in culture or whatever. And I was thinking about how many different roads something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. could take as you move into being a freelance writer and potentially working on like stories that aren't personal obsessions of a decade plus, is there a tension in terms of like, would you take a, just a purely reported story at this point where you have to go in for two weeks and do it and be done with it? I would. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in doing all different kinds of stories right now. I don't think I've, you know, I can say for certain that I'm only interested in this kind of story because I haven't, you know, fully explored you know yeah. different kinds of, of pieces yet right now I'm doing a story that's uh, just I'm interviewing people that know a woman who won't give interviews so I'm, I'm just working around her and it's all phone calls I'm not going anywhere so that's very different from my usual on the ground experience it's funny now I understand what you mean by a woman who won't give interviews when you first said that, I pictured like a totally normal person who there's no reason why they'd be interviewed, who's like claim to fame is that they don't give interviews. You know, uh, that could be interesting too. <laughs> uh, in terms of like transitioning and making this like a like a career, I guess, do you have like a quota of like how many stories you want to do every year? I mean, are you like starting um, like a, is it this like starting a small business that you need to like bring in a certain amount every year of money from reporting? Oh, I have. I mean, I have no idea. I, I, I just decided to leave NYU just five days ago. But I mean, yeah, I want to, you know, I can go back to teaching later. That's not, I, I love teaching, but right now it doesn't seem necessary. Yeah. And I, I want to have the freedom to travel to sort of, you know, hear about something and be able to get on a plane. You know, I think that I always want to be writing a book at the same time while I'm writing magazine articles. So I'm I'm sort of hoping that one of the stories I'm following will will turn into a book or will lead me to a story while I'm on assignment that could lead yeah. me to a larger project because I do like to spend a lot of time with with a topic and and explore it in a book length form. Um, but right now, after Demon Camp, it's it's a relief to be able to actually finish something and see it to completion. Yeah, you know, I think there's that satisfaction that comes with shorter pieces that you that you know in a book length project is it feels, you know, like it's never going to end. Do you, are you ever like inclined to go back to your weird childhood and like try and figure out what was going on with the the Indian artifacts yeah, and everything? I think I'm actually. I, going, I have a lot of questions about I'm, your childhood. I think I'm going to write an essay about my dad because he was sort of the center of this mystery, and we've never known what he does for a living. Um, right now, he says he's a gold miner in Arizona and Idaho. Yeah, we've never seen the gold mine. And my mom sometimes says she's out there target practice with her rifle. Yeah. But we don't really know why. How can you not? Like, I know every, like, I know a lot about my parents. It's all very boring. I could, like, I could uh, get through it all in, like, one minute here. You you have no idea what your dad has done for a living your entire childhood? No, well, we, we always know sort of what he's doing at the moment, but we don't know if that's true or not. And he's, he's always 
changing careers and he'll have a new business card. Uh, once we owned some footage of land in Belize, yeah. and my dad was like, oh, kids, we're going to go here. This is great. And then like two days later, he's like, never talk about that video again. Whoa. <laughs> so, like, what, what, is, what is going on? He invented this barbecue called the Pyramid. I'm actually kind of interested in that. (laughs) Um, How does the pyramid work? I think it's just, it can kind of fold up like origami and and, and it's, you know, sort of like a pop-up barbecue in a way. They don't make it anymore. Obviously it wasn't that functional. Do you think your dad would be interested in doing a podcast where I call him and just have him discuss his like current employment plans? It would be amazing. It sounds pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. And your brother is also a writer. He is. Yeah. Is that a blessing or a curse? I think it's a blessing. Yeah. He and I have always, I mean, since we've been sort of adults, have been writing, so I don't really know it any other way. But yeah, it's nice to be able to talk about writing in the yeah. industry. Although we both sort of go home and sometimes are just like, oh, too many writers around. We don't want to talk to them anymore. I feel like you got to like cover all your dad's shit before your brother. Like if, if you're sitting on like a potential like, <laughs> right, like right. hit piece on your dad's barbecue, right. you don't want to like <laughs> let him scoop you on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes we'll be like, okay, whoever writes about that first wins. <laughs> Sorry. Like once you mentioned he has like a like barbecue invention, my brain cannot I like how come that's up what with you're a new que- on, yeah. question. Uh, well, I think that's probably, w- when that's happening in my brain, it's probably as decent uh, time to stop as any. So uh, thank you very much for coming in, uh, Jen. Thank you. We'll um, have links to all of these inventions in the show notes. And um, check out Demon Camp. It's available from Scribner. And uh, you can get the new uh, the story about Commander Pigeon in the New Republic. And it sounds like you get the Harper's January issue to get more from Afghanistan. We'll be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Jen Percy, to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Rachel Mabe. Um, again, we've got an uh, exclusive limited time um, uh, promo for the article, uh, The Trials of White Boy Rick, which is actually much more than an article. I think it's about 18,000 words by Evan Hughes. Um, thanks to him and Adivis for making that available in the long-form app. Uh, you can download that app free from iTunes. The story's free. Uh, give it a try. Check it out. It's quite addictive. Uh, I think you're going to like the app. So um, thanks again to uh, Adivest and Hughes for that. I hope some people check that out and send me some feedback on it because i got to be fixing stuff. Okay, too much rambling. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.